Jesus, we thank you, um, Jesus, for Richard. Thank you that he was here a long time ago. And, <laughs> and Jesus, the amazing things you had him do. And Lord, all the things, Jesus, that you've had him do since then. And we pray, Jesus, he will know he's among friends. And we open our hearts to him and trust Holy Spirit. There is something that you want to say to us, something that will help us, Lord, step out into the call that you've placed on our lives to bring light in the darkness, especially, Lord, in these times. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. Um, Right, there we are. Um, good morning. It is really lovely to be with you today. As Tom said, my name is Richard England. Uh, I'm married to Catherine and we met over there in the queue for our first student lunch. That's where we met and we've now been married for just over 24 years. So it's a little bit kind of stereotypical, but there we are. Um, and we were here, we lived in Sheffield for 12 years from 1994 uh, to 2006 before I went off to train um, to be a vicar. I worked on the staff team uh, doing children's and families work and then uh, youth uh, working with um, youth and students and young adults. And we were part of the team that planted what became um, the Philadelphia uh, Church. So it is, it's been about 20 years since I I spoke here, so it's a real, real pleasure to be back uh, with you um, today. So um, this morning we're going to think about what it means to be kingdom people in a secular age. That's going to be our topic for this morning. But to start off with, we're going to read um, scripture together, which is going to be from Acts 27. Uh, now, the, the link may not be immediately obvious, so just kind of bear with. We'll read the scripture and then we'll come back to it in a few minutes uh, and I'll hope kind of draw the link together as to why we're looking at this. So if you've got a Bible with you, you'd like to turn it to Acts 27. We're going to read um, the first 26 verses together. Let me just tell you the story so far. Um, so far in the book of Acts, um, much of the second half of the book of Acts is the story of Paul, the apostle, one of the first generations of Christian writers and thinkers and church planters. And he, um, he's he been traveling around the Mediterranean, planting churches, telling people about Jesus. But on his return to Jerusalem, because he's a controversial figure for the Jewish authorities, he got arrested. But as well as being part of the, uh, as, as well as being Jewish, he was also a Roman citizen. So feeling that he would not get a fair trial, he appealed to Caesar uh, and they decided that because he'd appealed to Caesar they're going to put him on a boat and send him to Rome where he would stand trial. So that we join the story uh, as Paul is about to, on his boat, about to leave Judea and head for Rome. So we're going to start at Acts 27 verse 1. So here we go. Uh, this is Luke writing, who's clearly in the story, part of the story himself. So when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. 
There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Now, let me just, a little minor point as we go along here. The Alexandrian galleys that went around the Mediterranean would have been the largest ships in the ancient world. So you have to think the the ancient equivalent of a modern day container ship that was mostly there carrying grain to Italy to feed everybody, but would then take on top of the grain 276 passengers. It would have been a massive, massive thing. That'll be important in a minute. So we made slow um, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Cnidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because it was now after the fast. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there, not Phoenix in Arizona, obviously. Um, this was a harbour in Crete facing both southwest and northeast. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, uh, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Don't you love that person that says, I told you so? Great, thanks. That's really helpful. You should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great. So I want to think with you for a few moments about what it means to be kingdom people in a secular age. Um, I don't know if you've spoken to your neighbours recently, to family members or friends, work colleagues, people you know in the community, but if you have, you probably realise that it's becoming increasingly common that people don't believe in God. And not only do they not believe in God, they have no conception of reality beyond what you can see and touch and feel. There is no conception of the sacred, the divine, God, the supernatural, the spiritual. They live entirely within a closed system of the material, natural world with very little idea or understanding or belief in anything beyond that. 
Now, this is not a new thing. This is not a new phenomenon. This, these trends have been uh, growing within our culture, within our society for quite a long time. So back in 1802, the French mathematician Laplace presented his work on celestial mechanics to Napoleon. And Napoleon read it and asked him what place there was for God within his understanding of the world. To which Laplace replied, Sir, I have no need of that hypothesis because he was French. Uh, He had, even then, 200 years ago, he was creating ideas that you could have reality and a world without God. So those ideas have been around for a while, but it's really only been in the post-war period that those ideas have moved out of the academies, out of the universities, and have begun to trickle down into society in general. So over the last 20 years, you probably will know this, the proportion of people in the UK that identify as having no religion, according to the census, has almost tripled. It went from about 11-12% in 2001 to 37% in 2012. It's been a huge shift in a very uh, short period of time. So very many of the people that you work alongside, probably very many um, of your family, it's not just that kind of everyone believes something and it's all a little bit contested. It's actually that it's possible in our society today to go your whole life from birth to death, cradle to grave, without any conception of anything beyond the material, beyond the natural, beyond what you can see and touch and feel. We are living in what um, the uh, Canadian Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor calls a secular age. Now that doesn't mean that no one does, that doesn't mean that like every, no one believes in God, loads of people believe in God. But what it means is the possibility of a life without God, without the sacred, without the spiritual, without the supernatural, a life without any of that is now possible. It's now a live option, a viable possibility for people in a way that it really has actually never been before in human history. This is kind of new. So what does it mean for us to be kingdom people in a secular age? What does it mean for you and I at work, as a church, in our our tables, in our community groups, in our streets with our neighbours? What does it mean that we be kingdom people in a secular age? What I would love to do is I'd love to use this passage that we've had read to us as a picture, as a metaphor of our lived experience at present as the church in the West. Now, we love biblical metaphors. Everyone loves a good biblical metaphor, but we tend to like the positive ones. We like Joshua going into the promised land or the walls of Jericho coming down. And we love Nehemiah rebuilding the temple, you know, yeah, rah, rah, you know, something really, really positive. This is not a positive metaphor. Okay, this is a little bit more challenging. Um, however, I believe passionately that the, the great leadership, good godly leadership, is about being able to see the reality in front of you and yet not lose hope. It isn't about saying everything's all, you know, sticking your head in the sand. It is about looking at the reality in front of you and not losing hope. So I'd like to use this story as a metaphor. I'm currently on sabbatical and this has been the topic of my uh, thinking and my reading and my study. Um, and uh, and I, it's really been a helpful picture for me to try to understand something of what we are living through at present. So, so let, me, let me just kind of give you a brief outline. So um, the ship and everybody on board represents the church in the West. 
okay? Uh, and we are kind of set off, going in one direction, but a storm has blown across us. And not just a storm, a huge storm, a storm of hurricane force. Uh, and for the church uh, in the West, that storm is components to it. One is cultural change that we just talked about, secularism. The other is church decline. The other is church decline. So there's loads of great things happening in the church in the UK right now. You are one of the, one of the kind of uh, focal points of the Lord doing wonderful things in the church right now. There's loads of hope, loads of good things. But at a macro level, at a bird's eye level, at a national level, the good news is still not outweighing the bad news. The bad news still outnumbers the good news so that a national level church attendance in this country is still going this way. So that storm is shaping us as well. So the people on the boat, are the, they're, they're the church going through a storm. Uh, and as if you were to keep reading on, you'd see that they, they, don't, they don't get out of it. They crash, they crashed onto the reef on, on, the, on the beach in Malta and they all washed up. And exactly as Paul said, nobody was lost, but the ship kind of went down. Uh, and speaking as an Anglican, I know that the institution that I am part of is not going to be able to survive the current storms that we are going through in its current shape. That's a conversation for another time. Let's just park that, but we'll move on. <clears throat> Having gone through the storm, crashed onto the reef, they then found themselves in a new what for them was an uncharted land where they had to start over in mission and ministry, start over seeing the kingdom of God at work around them. Okay, so that's the picture, that's the metaphor. Is that clear? Uh, so that we're going to work with this morning. And I would love to, it's a great story. I would love to encourage you to finish reading Acts 27 and read all of Acts 28. It would have taken all day if we'd read all of it this morning. But I'd love for you to read the way that the, the rest of how the story works out because it's absolutely fantastic. So within that picture, what does it mean to, for us to be kingdom? people in this secular age, in this kind of strange moment in which we find ourselves. I'd love to just focus on two things that we see in this passage, which are particularly revolve around the, the, the character of Paul the Apostle. Now, I don't know how you feel about Paul the Apostle. Some people like him. Some people aren't quite so keen. It's all right if you don't like him very much. You, you do have to like Jesus to be a Christian. It's kind of, that's kind of important. But you are allowed to have mixed feelings about Paul. It's okay. But in this passage, we see two incredible qualities uh, in Paul that I think, really, um, I think really help us and give us something to think about. Uh, the two qualities are this, that he was a non-anxious presence in the storm, and he was a leader in mission on the shore. He was a non-anxious presence in the storm. And then he was a leader in mission on the shore. And those two aspects of his character come from a single conviction that we'll come to when we finish within a minute. So let's have a quick look at these two, shall we? So let's have a think about Paul being a non-anxious presence in the storm. Let me just kind of dig in with you for a minute or two about how bad their situation was. I mean, the, um, the, they call this storm the Northeaster. These days in the Mediterranean, they call it a Grigale. And even today, with all of our modern technology, if you're in the wrong kind of boat and this storm blows up in the Mediterranean, you could be in real trouble. We read that it blew them for two weeks 
across the Mediterranean. Uh, it blew them, firstly, it blew them south, so that as we've read, they were, they were panicked that they were going to crash in the Bay of Sirtis, which is in North Africa. Back in those days, it was completely uninhabited. If they had crashed, uh, if they had kind of shipwrecked on the north coast of Africa, they would have died of starvation and thirst within two weeks because there was no one was going to rescue them. But actually the winds turned and then pushed them up to the southeast um, coast of Malta. Uh, but by the time they got there, they'd been blown for two uh, weeks. They'd been just kind of bashed and tossed and, uh, and tossed and turned through it all. They were starving. They were hungry. They were absolutely exhausted. And yet right in the middle of this, Paul stands in the middle of them and says, you know what? God's told me it's going to be okay. He's this non-anxious presence right in the middle of the storm. And that is the opportunity that you and I have, that we have together as a church, which is to be a non-anxious presence because we live in an anxious age, an age of anxiety. And it's not just the church that is suffering through all sorts of tumult and storms. It's our whole world um, right now. Uh, just over 12 years ago, um, an American management consultant, Jim Collins, wrote a book uh, on lead organizational leadership through chaos. Okay, if you ever have to do organizational leadership through chaos, you might want to read his book. It's called Great by Choice. Uh, and in the, in the, uh, the foreword, he wrote this. He said, we wrote this book because we believe that the future will remain unpredictable and the world unstable for the rest of our lives. I don't know what they're talking about. Everything's been fine since 2011. Hasn't it? Everything's fine. I mean, you know, they're not wrong, are they? They're not wrong. Even when I started prepping this just a couple of weeks ago, knowing I was come up here, even in the last two weeks, our world has again got a degree more complicated, a degree more difficult with the terrible situation in Israel and Palestine. It feels like the anxiety of our age has ratcheted up another degree because of the absolute horror of what we've seen um, on our television screens and what we fear might un unfold in the weeks and the months ahead. We are in the midst of some profound storms that are reshaping our world and we're not through it yet. And so the invitation for you and I and for us as a church is to be able to stand like Paul did in the middle of the storm and somehow work out how to be a non-anxious presence in the storm. That's not to pretend that everything is okay. That's not to take our own anxiety and to kind of bury it down and kind of go, hey, hey everything's fine. It's, it's to say this is really happening but God is really here. And the two things do not cancel each other out. They are completely true at the same time. This is really happening, but God is really here. Uh, the uh, Australian writer Mark Sayers um, has written a whole book on, uh, called A Non-Anxious Presence, so you'd be, it's a really good read. And he says this, he says, The most vital attribute in anxious human environments and systems is a non-anxious anxious presence. How can we be that? How can we be that? I'll come back to that in a minute. That's the first thing we see about Paul. And there's this amazing moment, if you carry on reading, where two weeks in, they've not eaten, they've been starving, they're hungry. And there's this amazing moment where he stood in front of them and he said, everything's going to be okay. You need to take care of yourself. You need to have something to eat. Then in front of these nearly 300 people, most of whom were not, you know, nearly all of whom were not practicing Christians, he took bread, the, the, the scripture says, and he broke it and he ate it in front of them. 
Like amazing pictures, kind of almost sacramental picture of standing on the, on the kind of the deck of the boat as they've been buffeted and battered for weeks and breaking the bread of his presence and eating it and taking it as a kind of symbolic, prophetic act that right here in the middle of this storm, we are not alone. We are not alone. So that's the first thing we see in Paul, that he was a non-anxious presence in the storm. Secondly, then, he was a leader in mission on the shore. And you would need to read forward to see what happened uh, to the story. They crash into the reef uh, in in Malta. If you've ever been to Malta, by the way, uh, there's a place called St. Paul's Bay, uh, where traditionally uh, that's where Paul landed. It is not where Paul landed. Uh, It's completely wrong. They've done loads of archaeological work to try and find the boat there. And the reason is they're looking in the wrong place, uh, because that's on the northwest of Malta, but they came into the southeast. There's a fantastic book called The Lost Shipwreck of Paul. I highly recommend it's gripping it's brilliant and it tells the story of an American archaeologist who kind of worked out that actually Paul probably arrived in St Thomas's Bay on the southeast of the island and when he got there to see and investigate it it turned out guess what Uh, the Maltese divers in the 60s and 70s had pulled up four Roman anchors exactly what they let down exactly what they would have dropped the, the story was already been told it's just that nobody knew so they crashed into Malta onto St Thomas's Bay not St Paul's Bay uh, and they started out in this strange new land they didn't even know what it was called and yet uh, straight away Paul found himself drawn into mission, drawn into the work of the kingdom. There's the story of getting bitten by a snake and all of that. But then the Roman governor had someone that was ill that they needed help. So Paul went to pray for them. The person was healed. And guess what? There was an outbreak of the kingdom of God. And in only three months, they planted a church there, which endures to this day. If you go to Malta and talk to the folks there that are part of the churches there, they trace their story back to Paul's visit nearly 2,000 years later. He wasn't even supposed to be there. He wasn't even supposed to be there. But yet finding himself after two weeks of being battered and bruised and thrown about, and yet what was the natural instinct of his was, do you know what? Well, here we are. We're just going to do some kingdom ministry. We're just going to do some mission. Because that's what he was. He was a leader in mission. How could he be like that? This is what he says of himself um, later on in um, 2 Corinthians um, 5 verse 14. He says this, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. He finds himself in a new place, had no plans to be there, a little bit like the church, kind of waking up and going, what on earth has happened to our culture? Like 50 years ago, everyone believed in God, now no one does. We weren't planning to get here. We don't particularly like it. Thank you very much. But what are we going to do here? What do we do here? Well, do you know what? We may not like it, but this is where we are, and Christ's love compels us, for we are convinced that one died for all. So the invitation for us in our new age is to find new ways and new forms of mission, of loving and serving our communities, our neighbours. doesn't mean you all have to suddenly go and plant churches. It may simply be that you need to learn to kind of pay attention to what's going on in your workplaces. Pay attention to what's going on. Mainly to you may go and make some new friends. Just go and start out in new ways. I learned to be a leader in mission in this church. 
in this church. I arrived here as a 19-year-old student. I was keen for Jesus. I was a keenie for Jesus. You can't imagine that, can you? I was very keen, and yet it was here that that I learned how to turn that passion for Jesus into a passion for mission. Emil Brunner says, the church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. Mission is what energizes, renews, is what releases the power of the church. A church that does not pour itself out in mission, eventually it dries up because the flow from heaven stops. When we pour ourselves out in mission, we will always find that we can't outgive God. He will always give what we choose to give, to give away. And that's what we see in Paul. He wasn't supposed to be there in a place he had no plans to be and yet planted something that 2,000 years later, people still trace their story back to that. Why, how is it, what's the conviction that underlies both of these characteristics of Paul? It's simply this. And this is so basic and so simple. You'll look at it and go, "Eh? no. The conviction is simply this. God is at work in the world. God is at work in the world. And yet, our secular age would want to kind of disallow that, would want to say, no, he's not. No, he's not. We get on fine within our closed system, within the matrix, thank you very much, we're fine. There's nothing bigger, nothing greater. And yet Paul's conviction, and let me me invite you to make this your conviction, is that God was at work in the world. On that boat, miles away from shore, be easy to think God's forgotten us. He's not interested in this little one ship getting caught in a storm, but he sent an angel. On the shore, on the far side of the storm, finding yourself in an alien place when it had been so easy to kind of just spend a few months recovering from what they've been through. They found themselves in a place of need and the kingdom of God broke out and a church that still exists 2,000 years later was planted because God is at work in the world. And when we, if we retreat back into our safe places, we may never realise that. We will find that in choosing to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious age because we believe that we're not alone. I, I'm sure you know this, but anxiety is um, an overestimation of the threats we face and an underestimation of our resources to meet it. And sometimes being a Christian makes, you know, we treat it as if it's like, just be more resilient because you're a Christian. But actually, being Christian is not just about being more resilient. It's realising that the resources you have to meet this situation are not yours alone. That in the middle of the storm, an angel came and stood by Paul and said, it's going to be okay. And perhaps in the middle of the storm, there is an angel standing beside you too. Because you are not alone. It's not just that God is out there somewhere. It's that he is at work in the world right here right now and when we choose to commit ourselves to his work serving and loving our communities we find out guess what he's at work out there too and even though we live in a secular age where everybody thinks not everybody an increasing number of people think they just get by without any of that when you start to get to know people you find out that guess what he's already at work John chapter 5 Jesus said this my father is always at work to this very day And I am working too. And he invites us to, like Paul, to join in. To to, to open our eyes, to see where the Father is at work in the world and simply join in. So what does it mean to be a kingdom people in a secular age? It starts with this. 
that the lie of secularism is that God is not at work in the world. And the truth we put into the midst of our lives, to the midst of our workplaces, to the midst of our communities, is that God is at work in the world, reconciling all things to himself through his Son. And that we therefore get to offer to our anxious age a non-anxious presence. Not because we're not managing all the stuff. You're managing all the same stuff that your friends and family members are. I get that. And we, our own levels of anxiety will spike and peak and all sorts of things too. But fundamentally we know that we are not alone in the storm. And from that we get to choose to partner, participate with God in his mission. Which is the redemption the reconciliation of all things. That's how we get to be kingdom people in a secular age. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen.